Welcome to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we feature the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. Today we're going to share the second of three teachings from a series we kicked off in the last episode called World War III, When, Where, and Why. Pastor Harris will focus on specific alliances that will assemble as the next world war approaches. Now I do have to say that as Dad starts to chip away at some of this scripture in Ezekiel 38, There are a few elements that do hit fairly close to our current news and events. One other thing that I'll note is that as you listen to this episode, you might notice the audio sounds a bit different from the first teaching in the series. Well, for some reason, it is a bit different. The file I found was a different file type, but it was named and numbered just like the others in the series. Now, I can speculate, but I can't really explain all of that. But what I do know is that Dad wanted this specific teaching taught in this order. So that's how we're going to publish them. So with that, I hope everyone enjoys the second installment of this series, World War III, When, Where, and Why, with this teaching titled, Alliances. Now in Ezekiel 38, verses 3 through 6, the armies of Magog are listed. The prophet declares this, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth, and all thine army Horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shields, all of them handling swords. Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya are with them, all of them with shields and helmets. Gomer and all his band, the house of Tagarma, of the north quarters, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Now, beloved, this translation, which I've taken from the Schofield edition of the King James Version, is uncertain when it suggests the reading, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, other, more correct editions read this way, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, that is the correct reading, beloved, from the Hebrew text. It really should read, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, the word Rosh in Hebrew means, very simply, head or chief which leads the Schofield scholars to see Gog as the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, not the prince of Roth. But, but, but the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Septuagint translate Rosh, R-O-S-H, as a geographical place. Now, the interesting thing is that the word Rosh is linguistically related to the words Ros, which is R-H-O-S, Rus, R-U-S, and Ros, R-O-S, and every single one of those names, Ros, Rus, and Ros, are all names that were associated with Russia at one time or another in history. Now, when I studied Hebrew in graduate seminary, our standard referral text was the Hebrew Chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament, which was authored by Wilhelm Gesenius, a 19th century German lexicon. Now, in his work, Gesenius concludes that the Rosh to which Ezekiel refers is undoubtedly the Russians who are mentioned by the Byzantines of the 10th century under the name Rosh, R-O-S, dwelling to the north of the Taurus. In other words, what this tells me is that Gog rules or that he will one day rule Russia. Russia is Magog. Now, beloved, each of the allies who accompany 
Magog in their attack upon Israel. Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, Gomer, and Tagarma is important to Ezekiel's prophecy, so each of these nations will be examined individually. Let's begin with the first of those allies. Let's begin with that nation-state that is known today, is known to history as Persia. Now, the main ally of Russia in its invasion of the land of Israel is called Persia by Ezekiel. The Persians were who? Well, the Persians were the descendants of Elam, the first son of the Old Testament patriarch Shem, who was himself the son of Noah. Now, the first historical mention of Persia is found in the Assyrian text written in the 9th century B.C., where Persia is called Persia. Now, this name, the name of the country was changed from Persia to Iran in 1935. So, ancient Persia is modern Iran. Now, understand this. The Iranians are not now, nor have they ever been Arabs. See, don't ever mistake the Iranians as being Arabs. They are not Arabs. They are Aryans. In fact, the word Iran comes from the word Aryan. Now, as you know, until recently, Iran has been a hopelessly backward nation. But since oil was discovered there, it has surged to prominence in the world. Today, this nation, I'm talking again about Iran, is on the ver verge of becoming a nuclear power, beloved, and the primary military force in the Middle East. And this nation is dangerous. It's dangerous, and it's dangerous simply because of its religion. You see, almost the entire population of Iran belongs to the Shia sect of Islam. Shiite Islam is radically fundamentalist by its very nature. When the Ayatollah Khomeini led the Islamic Revolution in the late 1970s, you know what he did? What he did? He established the first modern Islamic Republic, and the first thing he did, beloved, is declare war on the United States of America. You say, Pastor, you're wrong. Iran never declared war on America. Yes, they did. They declared war in Amer on America in 1979 by attacking the United States on our own soil. And what I mean is this. The Ayatollah Khomeini commissioned his radical followers to attack our enemy in Tehran and to take hostages. Now, beloved, attacking our embassy represents an attack on the United States of America. How so? Because any nation's embassy belongs to that nation. It is that nation's soil. When you are in Tehran and you step across the gate into the American embassy, you are stepping on United States soil. And when that, in, that embassy was attacked, the United States of America was attacked. And that, my friends, was radical Islam's first shot across the bow of the United States of America. But as you and I know, it certainly would not be the last. Now, one man who saw the danger of Iran and radical Islam was Saddam Hussein, the leader of Iraq. You see, we spend all of our time trashing him, but I can tell you what, he was more farsighted than a lot 
of the leaders of the free world. You see, Saddam recognized that 60% of the population of the state of Iraq is Shiite Muslim. And he was well aware that if push came to shove, the Shiites of southern Iraq, being the nation's majority population group, would stand with their Shiite Iranian brethren and not with the apostate Iraqi Sunni Muslims, which is the way in which all Shiites see all Sunnis. So Saddam conducted periodic purges, keeping the Shiites in Iraq under severe restraint to keep them from assuming the reins of government. You see, Saddam understood the danger of radical Islam. He understood the danger that the Shia movement posed. But the governments of the West, for the most part, did not. We just thought it was just another religious expression. Now, one of the men in the West who did understand the danger posed by the Shiites in Iran was George Herbert Walker Bush, the President of the United States at the time. He understood that removing Saddam Hussein from power would embolden the Shiites who would quickly be armed by Iran. And then by sheer force of numbers, he recognized that the Shiites would attempt to seize control of oil-rich Iraq. With that, radical Islam would control a majority of the remaining oil reserves of the world and possess the potential to destroy the economies of the petroleum-dependent West. So, George H.W. Bush did not choose to topple Saddam. When the armies of Saddam were obliterated in Desert Storm and the highway to Baghdad was undefended, George H.W. Bush did not allow Norm Schwarzkopf's charge into Baghdad. Now, a lot of less than intelligent Americans did not understand this. And many were desperately concerned and many wanted the hide of President George H.W. Bush for that. But beloved, it was the most intelligent policy at the time. Now when George H.W. Bush's son, George W. Bush, ascended to the presidency, his approach would be far different from that of his father. You see, George W. Bush has been highly influenced by the writings of the Jewish genius Natan Sharansky, especially his classic work, The Case for Democracy, The Power of Freedom to Overcome Tyranny and Terror. Now, in this book, Sharansky explains clearly and cogently the link that exists between freedom and peace and between tyranny and terror. Democracies, Sharansky points out, never go to war with one another. Go back. Check it out. See if you can ever find one democracy going to war with another democracy. So, Sharansky says, if the world truly wants peace, what it wants is democratic societies, right? Well, Sharansky, or Sharansky, however you choose to pronounce it, demonstrates the need for the free nations, countries like the United States and Great Britain, to encourage the victories of democracies in places like Iraq, Afghanistan and Syria, because authoritarian governments are inherently unreliable when it comes to a commitment to peace. You see, dictators, beloved, as I've said earlier, have no qualms about sending another person's sons to die. But democracies do. The leaders of the democracies are responsible to the people, and the people do not want their sons to die. Dictators also demonstrate a reluctance to coexist 
with other cultural forms. Now, George W. Bush believes in Sharonsky's principles so strongly, as do I, that he chose to reject what we call the real politics of his CIA-trained father to allow to follow Sharonsky. George W. Bush believes, and rightly so, that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction, and as a result, President Bush saw Saddam Hussein as a greater threat to the peace of the world than Iran, even though he saw Iran as a great threat. So he called for the invasion of Iraq to install a democratic form of government there and in Afghanistan, thus surrounding Iran with democratic state. Now, the Iranian people, hopefully seeing these prosperous free people living all around them, would rise up and throw out the radical mullahs of Iran. That was that was the policy. That, that was what drove us into this situation, to establish democracies all around Iran and thus compromise them and force them to also become a democratic republic, and that way eliminating the threat of the Middle East. Now, history has now proven that George W. Bush and myself and Sharonsky may have been mistaken about the ability of democracy to work in today's all-or-nothing all or Middle East. See, the problem is with Islam itself. I underestimated it. And so did the president, and so did many others in the West. See, those in the West that are truly objective are rapidly finding that there's really no difference in moderate Islam and radical Islam. See, that's the big mistake we're making. We're, we're thinking that there are moderates and there are radicals, and we only have to fear the radical. Beloved, please understand what Pastor is saying to you. Listen to me now. Both types of Islam, whether it be moderate Islam or radical Islam, pose the same threat. You see, at heart, both of those religious forms, moderate Islam and radical Islam, seek to bring an end to Western civilization as we know it today. And I believe that the latter, now the latter of the two, radical Islam, must actually be destroyed. We must wipe it off of the face of the earth before democracy can possibly take root and then be implemented in the Middle East. That's the change I've made since 9-11. Now, in spite of the obvious consequences of tolerance toward Islam, many liberal politicians and political action groups in the United States of America are calling for the United States to pull out of the Middle East and especially out of Iraq and out of Afghanistan. Now, I'm, just, I'm sad to say that these groups are going to succeed. Take it as a prophecy from me. This issue will probably sweep the Democrats into office in the next elections in 2006. And they will move to remove our troops from Iraq and Afghanistan. But, beloved, I am here to tell you now that this withdrawal will be a disaster for the Middle East and for the security of the entire world. What's going to happen is it's going to create a political vacuum that the fundamentalists in Iran and Iraq will quickly fill. A confederation will be formed that will quickly dominate the entire Middle East. Suddenly the world will find a new Shiite empire, a new what they call a caliphate. A caliphate. 
and it will extend from the Indian frontier in Afghanistan to within 200 miles of the Mediterranean Sea in Iraq. And then, once Afghanistan and Iraq are securely allied with them, the mullahs of Iran will only have to take control of two other Middle Eastern nations, Syria and Lebanon, to realize their ultimate goals. They would then possess at least three major ports on the Mediterranean coast, as well as having their outlets on the Persian Gulf, and this is going to cause them to be an empire to be dealt with. Now, I find it odd that both Syria and Lebanon are never mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Since Syria and Lebanon are the two most ardently anti-Jewish nations in the world, the question arises, why would these two nations, Syria and Lebanon, refrain from joining Russia in their attack on their Zionist foes? Well, the answer appears to be that the Iranians will have already subdued Syria and Lebanon before Russia and her allies invade the land of Israel. Even today, Lebanon virtually belongs to Iran. Beloved, we know that through their terrorist puppets, the Hezbollah. At any moment, Hezbollah could take over the state. It would not be politically expedient for that to happen now. And so, we're in a waiting game. Now, once Syria and Lebanon have fallen, the Emirate of Jordan will collapse like a house of cards. And the new Persian Caliphate, composed of Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and Lebanon, will then own much of the tangible wealth of the Middle East. In an alliance with Russia, it would be a force with which to reckon. Beloved, another superpower would be born. Now, at this point in history, Russia is Iran's major ally in the United Nations. We all know that. I mean, they're already allied. Russia is Iran's major ally and is providing the Iranians with a host of engineers and electronic weapons experts. You see, the, Iranian, the Iranians need these Russian experts to help build Iran into a power broker in the Middle East. Their ever-growing military machine and then... Nuclear dreams are helpless without the Russians. It can't happen without this alliance, my friends. This alliance is important to Iran. The Russians, on the other hand, believe that this alliance will enable them to once again be a player on the global scene, which they haven't since the downfall of the USSR. Now, so we know that Magog's number one ally will be Persia or Iran and its new empire. Now, it also mentions Cush. Who is Cush? Well, the founder of this nation was the oldest son of Ham, the second son of Noah. He was the father of the infamous rebel Nimrod, who erected the Tower of Babel. Now, the Cushites originated in Mesopotamia, but began immigrating toward Africa. In the days of Ezekiel, this nation was located south of Egypt and is today divided into two nations, the nations we know as Ethiopia and Sudan. The land of Cush was also known as Nubia at one time. And the Sudan is now an Islamic republic and Ethiopia is in the process of becoming an Islamic republic. So everything, beloved, is falling into line for these nations to come together. Now, 
The next nation mentioned is Put, P-U-T. The founder of the nation of Put, or Put, was the third son of Ham. The Jewish historian Josephus identifies Put as the founder of the nation of Libya, which was a huge area in biblical days covering all of North Africa. So his descendants include the Berbers and all other tribes of, of, of North Africa. So in reality, Libya, in the prophetic sense, includes Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Mauritania. All of these nations, beloved, are predominantly Muslim today. What about Gomer? Gomer's also mentioned as a part of this alliance. Well, this person, Gomer, was the oldest son of Japheth, who was the third son of Noah and the father of Ashkenazi, Riphat, and Tagarma. You see, Gomer's descendants are identified in Greek history as the Kimmeroi. That's how the Greeks pronounced it, the Kimmeroi, K-I-M-M-E-R-O-I. Now, in the earliest days, the men of Gomer were feared equestrian nomadic warriors. Herodotus indicates that in his day, the people of Gomer inherited the northern region of the Caucasus Mountains and the Black Sea in the present state of Georgia. One group of the Kimmeroi, or of Gomer, must have established themselves in that region, the area that we now call, we, we call, now call Georgia, while others, the majority, migrated eastward. Now, according to the Assyrians, those Kimmeroi who moved toward the east settled in a region known as Azerbaijan today. Beloved, this modern nation, Azerbaijan, the descendants of the Kimmeroi, share a long border with Iran. And what is fascinating is the fact that they, like the Iranians, now get this, are you ready for this? They are also Shiite Muslims. In fact, according to Wikipedia, the Internet Encyclopedia, their language even in the most ancient times, was Iranian. And from the time of their national origin as a people, they had an Iranian ruling class, whatever that means. We should also be aware that in ancient times, it wouldn't be strange for nomadic people such as the Kimmeroi or the Gomerites to, to establish themselves in several different places. One thing is certain about the descendants of Gomer, however, these people will accompany the Russians when they invade the land of Israel. What about Tagarma? As indicated earlier, Tagarma is another of the sons of Gomer who settled near the Caspian Sea. We know their nation today as Armenia. And the truth is, the ancient Syrians referred to these people as being the Tilgarimu, a nation that resided in the land bordered by Azerbaijan on the east, Iraq on the south, and Turkey on the west. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the Armenians still refer to themselves as being the House of Tagarma. That's who they call themselves. Now, what about Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal? As we have seen, Rosh is Russia. Meshach was the sixth son of Japheth. The identity of his descendants has been hotly debated. They are identified as the Mushki by the Assyrians and the Mushkoi by the Greeks. The Assyrian descriptions indicate that they were located in the region of Phrygia in northern Turkey. Herodotus agreed. Josephus also places these people in the region of Turkey. However, Wilhelm Gazanius, who I mentioned earlier, wrote that Meshach was the founder of the Mushkoi, a barbarous people inhabiting the Mashkin Mountain. Gazanius concluded that the Mashki established the city of Moscow. That's pretty good proof, is it not? Tubal was the fifth son of Japheth and the brother of Meshach. 
Now, the identity of his descendants is also in question. Some say they also inhabited the region of modern Turkey, while others say that Tubal settled in Siberia and established the city of Tobolsk on the Tobol River, a derivative of the word Tubal. Now, if Wilhelm Gazanius is right, that would exclude Turkey from this invading army, and I do tend to believe Gazanius to be right. You see, Turkey is far from being an Islamic republic. In fact, it's the most secularized of the Islamic nations. I, 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 I don't at all see them in this conflict. But now, clearly, here's the key. This tremendous military force that we've identified now, composed of the armies of the Russian Republic, the former Soviet republics of the Ukraine, Georgia, Armenian, and then the new Shiite Caliphate, our empire, including Iran, Afghanistan, Iraq, possibly Lebanon, and Syria, will all invade this one tiny nation known as Israel, which is no larger than the Oklahoma Panhandle. Now, apparently, this invasion will not be aggressively challenged by the other nations of the world. You just don't find it in the text. In fact, it appears that Israel's fate will simply be observed by other nations of the world without any reaction at all. They will refuse to join Israel. As Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 13 states, Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, with all the young lions thereof, shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to take a great spoil? Do you see? Do you see, my friends? Do you see? Here in this verse, Ezekiel is making it clear that a coalition is formed to contest the invasion of the land of Israel, but they, but they are passing. Now, among those nation, nations mentioned is Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions. Now, one thing is clear. The armies associated with Magog are not in the least impressed by this coalition. They'll even mock this alliance. Apparently, the members of the coalition feel that they are incapable, incapable of stopping the aggression of this confederation of Gog, Magog, and their allies, this axis of evil. So who are these coalition nations that gather to oppose them? Well, Sheba and Dedan are easy to identify. Even in biblical days, they were cities that are in the present Saudi Arabia. The fact that the Saudis belong to this coalition is startling to me. You see, in light of their historical hatred of the Zionists, one would assume that the Sunnis would be part of the invasionary forces. You see, what's the problem? Well, evidently at this time, the, the, the Saudis who are Sunnis will fear the new Shiite caliphate more than they despise Israel. And they will join the coalition to resist the alliance. But all they will do is watch and talk. Now, what about the merchants of Tarshish, who form one part of this coalition? Who are they? Well, this place, Tarshish, is first mentioned in the Bible in 1 Kings. At that time, they were the leading merchant sailors in the world. They operated great fleets of ships during the period in which Solomon ruled over Israel. The problem is, no one knows exactly where Tarshish was located. Some say it was located on the coast of India, since the ships of Tarshish sailed from the ports of Etzion Geber on the Gulf of Aqaba. Since the Suez Canal did not exist, the ships sailing from that place would have to have sailed to Africa or to India. Now, other scholars have identified that Tarshish 
with the northern African city of Carthage. However, this, believe me, as a historian, I can tell you, these arguments are rather weak. Now, the preponderance of the evidence indicates that Tarshish was a Phoenician port city located on the Mediterranean coast of Spain. It was indeed founded by a Carthaginian, but was soon taken by the Phoenicians as their westernmost harbor. And the Phoenician sailors would regularly transport goods from their home base in Tyre to all points in the Mediterranean, especially resupplying their ships in Tarshish for their long journey home. As a matter of fact, this port is sometimes called the Peru of the Tyrian adventure. So Tarshish was in modern Spain. Well, I find it interesting that Christopher Columbus discovered the Americans while sailing under what? Yes, a Spanish flag. Could the Americas, particularly the United States of America, be one of the young lions associated with Tarshish? I think that is the case. I believe the United States, Great Britain, Spain, and a few other nations will put together a coalition. However, I believe that the growing anti-Israeli movement in America and Britain and our soon-to-be ill-fated activities in Iraq will make our two nations, indeed the entire coalition, unwilling to resist the axis of evil. These nations will not have the moral courage to act, and so they will only sit and watch as the only democracy in the Middle East is violently and viciously invaded. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Aerial Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at aerialministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Aerial Ministries in Thuraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Aerial Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit aerialministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thuraka mission, you can visit aerialministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.